Welcome to Advancing the Agenda. I'm your host, Michael Abramson. Today's guest is Governor Robert Ehrlich, and we will be reviewing his new book, Original, Unconventional, and Inconvenient, Donald J. Trump and His MAGA Movement. Governor Robert Ehrlich served as governor of Maryland from 2003 to 2007. Prior to that, he represented Maryland's second congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1995 to 2003. Previously, he was a member of the Maryland House of Delegates. Currently, he is senior counsel in the government advocacy practice at King & Spalding Law Firm. He advises clients on a broad array of policy matters and their interactions with the federal government. Governor Ehrlich has authored five books, Turn This Car Around, The Roadmap for Restoring America, America, Hope for Change, Turning Point, Picking Up the Pieces After Eight Years of Failed Progressive Policies, Bet You Didn't See That One Coming, Obama, Trump, and the End of Washington's Regular Order, and finally, Original, Unconventional, and Inconvenient, Donald J. Trump and His MAGA Movement. Governor Ehrlich was an all-state linebacker in high school. He graduated from Princeton University, where he played linebacker on the school's football team and was captain of the freshman and varsity teams. He then graduated from Wake University School of Law. He and his wife, Kendall, host a weekly podcast entitled Bottom Line with Bob and Kendall Ehrlich. You can find all of the governor's writings, podcasts, and updates at govbobehrlich.com. The website and link for the book are in the podcast description for today's episode. Governor, welcome to the show. Michael, it's great to see you. Really great to uh, hear your voice. Um, been a friend for a number of years now. I'm, I'm proud, of you, proud of your success and happy to do the interview today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to start off with a just a brief overview of the book, and then we'll just go into some questions. Okay. The, book, the book is an, an analysis of the Trump administration and its impact on America's culture, party establishments of both the Republican and Democratic Party, and the nation as a whole. Each chapter of the book takes on a different topic of the Trump administration, such as Trump's governing style, the fake impeachment controversies, COVID, etc. The governor provides a retrospective analysis of each topic and then provides articles which he wrote during the Trump administration which coincide with each chapter's topic. The articles are from the Western Journal, Washington Examiner, National Review, and Life Z. These articles bring forth analysis which was insightful when they were written, and they continue to be thought-provoking. The format of the book allows the reader to relive the Trump years and also wrestle with topics which are still relevant today. I thought it was a great read, highly recommended for everybody. Certain themes are present throughout the book, but I think the best way to, to discuss the and the best way to discuss the book is to examine each one of these themes. But but the first question is, how does this book build on your last book? Well, that's a great question because it does. Uh, I had not intended to write the fourth book. Bet you didn't see that one coming. And as you recall, uh, I had been running around New Hampshire and Rhode Island and Florida and basic up and down the East Coast promoting that book, Turning Point. Mm -hmm. And at that time, 15, 16 early months of the uh, presidential primary campaign, uh, wherein uh, 
Kasich and Cruz and Rubio and Bush and all the major Republican standard bearers were in, in the vanguard of the top candidates. And then the celebrity guy comes around, the casino magnet comes around, the guy that fires people comes around, the Queens developer comes around and at first taken as a joke. But uh, as I was out there promoting my book and doing Republican events and business group events and Lincoln Day dinners and all that, I saw, and most importantly, I felt, I touched the beginnings of this very interesting pseudo-populist movement called MAGA. And so I had to write that book. That was the fourth book. Bet you didn't see this one coming and explore the the real marriage I witnessed between people with dirt under their fingernails, people with blue collars, and this celebrity queen developer. And then that book did very well. Trump was so interesting, so so unique, such a dramatic presidency, holding your breath every day, success and failures and depression and happiness and tweets and everything we know. I had to write this book. Right. I had to I had to memorialize and not Michael and not in a sycophonic way. It was not my purpose here to write yet another Trump is great book. And it's certainly not a Trump is awful book. There's plenty of those out there as well. Uh-huh. I wanted to write from a conservative perspective, right a center perspective, my perspective, if you will. Uh, thoughts, observations, uh, the history of those four years, and most importantly, uh, one, how unique those years were, and, and then the bottom line, if you will, that this roadmap, this agenda, this Trump movement, the constituent elements of it, how important that uh, political agenda is for the future of not only the Republican Party, but also the United States of America. And that was my purpose in writing the book. It, it is interesting. You definitely talk about both good and bad from him. And I, I think that leads to our first theme, which is you discuss Trump's communication style. You, you discuss his, his mean tweets, maybe occasional bad, bad taste one-liners, as you say, unforced errors, missing the opportunity to tout policy successes, all of which are true. And uh, one of the funny things that I read was that you coined the term family syndrome with Trump. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, it was, uh, it's something very familiar to anyone with siblings. Um, you may fight with your family. You may fight with your brother. But if the guy down the street throws a rock at your brother, who's the first guy to defend your brother? You. Right. <laughs> so uh, I think a lot of Republicans, you know this very well, just to be blunt about it, just to be honest about it. Most Republicans really like the policy successes of the Trump administration. They uh-huh. love them. Now, not the establishment types necessarily, but certainly Republicans of your ilk, my ilk, uh, a lot of folks, people in the middle, quite frankly, a lot of independents really liked this disruptor. I know we're going to talk about disruptor because that's true. Yeah, that, that was in there, but go right um, ahead. We'll be talking about that in a minute, but th- they liked it. They did not like certain aspects of his personality. They didn't like the salesmanship. Uh, they didn't like the, the sometimes the mean tweets, not, not just the mean tweets, but sometimes the irrelevant t- tweets, the mm-hmm. irreverent tweets, the personal tweets. The you know why get into a Twitter war with the Pope, for example? <laughs> but 
But uh, it makes me laugh. Uh, so a lot of Republicans had this, geez, we like what's going on. Uh, we don't like this part of his personality. But on the other hand, when the left attacks, we're going to protect. And, and so a lot of establishment type voters, at least Republican GOP establishment type voters, came around to appreciate a re- truly successful Republican president. And they defended him uh, against sometimes, a lot of times, baseless attacks from the progressive left. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you, you have a quote from Winston Churchill a couple of times in the book. You say, don't throw stones at barking dogs. Yeah. And I, I think that that sort of sums up that you got to got to pick your battles. You got to pick your battles. And you know, Churchill made the point, if you're in a battle every day, uh, if you're throwing stones at every dog that barks. Uh, and by the way, this is true of the left as well. They just hated him so much. They would, I mean, there were true policy differences. There were things they could have gone after the president about, but sure. you know, Russia, 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 Ukraine, they ended up picking stuff that was just stones. Now, they had boulders because they had the press, a lot of the legacy media on their side. They had, obviously, Democrats in Congress on their side. But in the end, they were just rocks from the bleachers. They were spitballs from the bleachers. Mm-hmm. They they certainly hurt the president to some extent with folks in the middle, but they were meaningless because they lacked substance. Right. And at the end of the day, people probably started tuning stuff out. Yeah. I, I don't think the president lost the race because of Russia, Russia, Russia. I mean, oh, no. No, 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 no. It was just, in, it was just empty in the end. And uh, well, somebody called the, who called the, uh, it was a member of the Legacy Press, the uh, Mueller report on Nothing Burger. Yeah. And that's what a lot of these investigations were, nothing burgers. But it does hurt you. You're always on the fence. And he didn't like being on defense. He wanted to go on offense. And so in any event, uh, uh, there were a lot of things to recommend about his way with the press. Uh, he followed the Reagan methodology with respect to going around the press, sometimes going through the press. We all talk, we all recall Ronald Reagan, the press used to get angry, the legacy media, the Democrats, oh, he's going right at the American people. We had yet another national address. He's going around us. Mm-hmm. We can't misinterpret what he's saying because he's going direct to the people. Well, he didn't have social media and President Trump did. And he utilized social media very effectively during the campaign of 2016 and during his presidency. The problem I refer to in the book is that uh, sometimes those messages lacked message discipline. Right, right. There were definitely, I I think what frustrated me was, well, I I would say two points. First of all, I never thought that the tweets were that bad, his personal tweets. I found that these politicians could say awful things about him, like he was going to start World War III, that he was Hitler. They could get away with that. But yet when he called somebody a silly nickname, that that I, I always found that bizarre. Like well, what they said was so much more worse. A couple things. One, nobody was used to the president of the United States using silly nicknames. Some of those nicknames stuck and some were really funny. Right. But your point's well taken. But, and I think you agree, sometimes those Twitter attacks occurred when we should have been celebrating major policy victories. <laughs> exactly. And therein exactly. is, is, is the problem because 
it's hard enough to achieve major policy victories if the press is going to report and focus on some minor uh, personal difference with some actor or whomever and not report because they don't want to report your successes, that's a problem. Right. I, I think Laura Ingram once said that when she was in the press office for Reagan, that they would have a message that they sort of focused on throughout the week. Um, that, that didn't quite happen here, but... Called message discipline, yeah. And, and look, how many people... I guarantee you this happened a couple thousand times during his presidency. I guarantee you. Because whenever I was in public, it happened a lot. People would come up to me and say can you tell him? And I would stop. <laughs> I would stop them. And I would say, no, I can't tell him. Nobody can tell him. This is a guy, you know, it's one of the reasons people love him so much because he's not listening to the pundits. He's not listening to the experts. He's doing his thing. And I talk about this in the book. Uh, he was unvarnished. And I talked about the expected hypocrisies, not my term, by the way, but I love the phrase. He didn't follow suspected hypocrisies as part of being the disruptor. He didn't placate the foreign policy establishment. He didn't placate a lot of, he didn't uh, buy into a lot of the assumptions that had led to decades of foreign policy failures, decades of American working class folks falling behind. He didn't follow this stuff. He took on the legacy media. He took on the legacy State Department. He took on the legacy of business community. China yeah. called him out. He took on uh, uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley and the Chamber of Commerce. This is the very definition of disruptor. Yeah, I love I love that that term, disruptor in chief. I thought yeah. that was very clever. Um, but I, I just want to button up the communication section before we get there. Yeah, I think you know the re the reality is is that Trump still got seventy four million votes in the presidential election. Yeah. 11 million more than the last time. So yeah. I, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he didn't know what he was doing. So, but uh, I guess they're, I don't know, pros and cons, but, but going back to this disruptor in chief, um, can you define that a little bit? I thought that was really interesting. You also said that Americans are, this is your quote, tired of getting screwed. Yeah. And I think that's very true. Here is a guy, again, suspected hypocrisies. Well, you're supposed to buy into assumptions, for example, with regard to the Middle East, a two-state solution, three-state solution, placate the Palestinians, don't move the embassy. He rejected all of that. He went for unilateral peace deals. He empowered you know, Sunni Arab states to uh, in increase their relationship with Israel and empower mm -hmm. Israel and and, and truly form a quiet coalition against the malign regime in Tehran. Uh, this was against the advice of the legacy State Department, as you well know. Uh, mm -hmm. The business community we just talked about, oh my God, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're gonna revisit these trade deals. You're gonna take on China. You're gonna call out that regime in Beijing. You're gonna talk about the artificial island building in the South China Sea. and repression in Hong Kong and stealing intellectual property and, and COVID and on and on. You're going to do that? My God, what's the NBA going to do? What's the yeah. American business community going to say? He didn't care because he's a disruptor. You know, the assumption here was, and I talk about this, that 
placating the Chinese communists over time would wear them down, would wear them out, would make them more Western, uh, more friendly to Western type liberalization. And we see just the opposite occurring. Mm -hmm. Yet the American business community, particularly Wall Street, wants to ignore it. So he took that on. He challenged those assumptions. Khashoggi and the Saudis, uh, when that, what's the expected hypocrisy for an American president when an event like that goes down? Right. Um, he didn't follow the expected condemnation route of the Saudi government. He pointed out how important they were uh, to Israel and this coalition he was building in the Middle East. And he certainly didn't uh, approve of what occurred. But again, he, he backed off, which is very interesting for a American president. When, this, when the uh, war hawks talked about... Uh, was it Iran shot down unmanned uh, predator, uh, and and the the, the uh, neocons decided to get all involved and and he said no you know I don't feel like killing 150 people just to make a point for an unmanned predator drone I mean it's just stuff people aren't used to so it's very different talk very real very upfront uh, the expected hypocrisies were not followed the best example I talked about in the book expected hypocrisies and you, this was funny. Yeah, they spent three and a half years, three years, more than three years, talking about Russia, 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 and the presence of Russian spy. And he goes on George Stephanopoulos on a national interview. Stephanopoulos asks him, hey, if a foreign government or someone uh, is connected with the foreign government called you with dirt on a political opponent, what would you do? What's the expected hypocrisy there? The expected hypocrisy is, oh my, I would call the FBI. What does Donald Trump say? Oh, uh, I, I listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't follow any of the expected hypocrisies and it set the establishments of both political parties mad. But yet, I, I think the, what, what, he, what he went for was what the American people wanted, or at least the, the people who voted for him wanted. And that is a very relevant observation with respect to the bottom line of my book. Because after I talk about how it came about, after this fascinating relationship with people with blue collars making $20,000, $40,000 a year, just uh, buying into this guy, and his call to personality and his agenda and his America first idealism mm -hmm. and his American exceptionalism and everything that he, he stood for. Uh, after I talk about that and after I talk about all the disruption of all these establishments and how every day was just 24 seven full court press, uh, the media in his face, him in the media's face. Uh, in the end, I talk about some context. And the context here is this agenda worked for America pre-pandemic, the economic numbers, the border, you know, the, the, the measurements of the important issues to the American people were all heading in the right direction. Right. Uh, and, and that agenda works. It was a very popular agenda. As you said, it increases vote total by 11 million. And it, it wasn't, but it wasn't only the, the blue, you, you point this out, that it wasn't only the blue collars that supported him. There were a lot of white collars who supported him too. Yeah, I, I talk about the uh, uh, white collar deplorables in the book. <laughs> Me, you. <Yep. laughs> 
Yeah, nobody, nobody talks about people with graduate degrees who supported the president, right? Right. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. And, and I also make the point, I think this, you know, we, I wrote an entire book and people were writing books about uh, how unique and, and different he was. And clearly what we've talked about here during this interview reflects that fact. But if you take 80% of his agenda, it's pure Republican deals. It's uh, regulatory reform. It's uh, tax cuts. It's, uh, it's sort of the new federalism. It, it's uh, conservative judges, pro-life, whole, the whole nine yards, tort reform. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, if you took a George W. Bush policy uh, list and a, and a Donald Trump policy list and listed 16, 17 issues, they'd all be the same, or Ronald Reagan for that matter. But when it came to communication, when it came to style, when it came to a couple big issues, especially China, uh, he was different. Yeah. He Taking on the Pentagon, no more endless wars. Again, uh, not following expected hypocrisies uh, of a uh, hypocrisies expected of any political leader, especially the president of the United States, the leader of the free world. This was very different, and it appealed to an awful lot of people in middle America and flyover America. Before the election, I, I wrote an article that that Trump had a new language of conservatism that instead of he didn't really talk about, oh, I want a small government. I want federalism. Yeah. But his his policies certainly embodied it. That, that, that's my point. You're absolutely on point. That, that's my point. Different mm-hmm. language. But in the end, very similar bottom lines. Right. Right. Well, let's let's shift a little bit from Trump. We'll we'll come back to him. But one of the themes you have in the book is about the indoctrination at America's schools and how we need to prevent that from happening. Can, can you explain what's taking place? I put some uh, uh, humor pieces in this book. I placed humor pieces in all of my books. Um because I appreciate humor. Uh, President Kennedy used humor to great effect. Uh, President Reagan as well. Humor disarms your political uh, your political opponents. Uh, humor is is really an important asset for for any politician. But it's becoming more difficult for me to write these humor satire articles because the satire is becoming true history on the left. Progressives have gone so far, so far left, so far in the speech code mode, so far in the safe zone mode, so far in the politically correct mode, so far in the woke zone that you can't write satire anymore because it's probably happening somewhere. Some school board somewhere has adopted that policy you used to think was something you made fun of. That you laughed about. That was the topic of satire. Uh, so, well, you know, it, this was happening. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to point out that that Rush Limbaugh, when he started out, he would say that they just made fun of the left, and then the jokes became the truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's my exact point. Right. So I stopped writing these pieces, and then yeah, you know, we would take for granted that. I use a football term in the book, between the 20s, Republicans, conservatives, 
fought between the 20s. When I was in Congress, state legislature, governor, we'd fight liberal Democrats on policy. But you know, the Democrats were still about pluralism. They were about speech and dissent, and they were still capitalists. But the point I make in the book is today, in the context especially of our schools, higher education, and now local school board issues, the woke left is ascendant. The woke left rejects fights between the 20s. The woke left has taken the Democrats to the red zone. So the woke left does not share a lot of, quote unquote, liberal traditional principles. I, I make a point in the book. I grew up in the 60s. I was born in 1957. I remember the civil rights movement and the women's movement, the anti-war movement. It was all about Berkeley and dissent and speech and we and Dr. King. And we celebrated uh, after all, after the 60s, we kind of celebrated that dissent. And today, the, the modern left, the woke left, wishes to shut dissent down. We celebrate American pluralism, the, the melting pot. You come here without a money, regardless of your skin color, your religion, your ethnicity, whatever. No money at all, and you can make yourself a success. But you, the, the social contract here is you blend and you assimilate into American values. And the woke left today is, no, we're going to separate ourselves out. I mean, the woke left is dangerous, is my point in the book. Not exactly a new point, but in the context of our schools, what's happened the last 20, 30, 40 years on our college campuses and now local school boards, these woke school boards, this is a serious affront one to parents, but most importantly, it's a serious attack on America, on American principles, uh, on, on the First Amendment. And what you saw go down in Virginia says it all, because Terry McAuliffe made the mistake of saying exactly what the progressive left thinks. Exactly. And enough blue-leaning parents said, uh -uh, we're not signing up for that. And, and so, again, that race occurred after the book uh, was complete, but a very relevant example of how far left these school boards, how far, uh, how much success the woke left has had in infiltrating our college campuses, and not just professors, administrators, I make that point in the book as well, have very liberal administrators as well, and now down to local school boards. You you have a you have a son in college. You have a son in high school. Can you give us a little more? And I'm not going to say that these things are happening at their schools, but can you give us a little examples of of what's going on? I I, I think about my college career. I remember '95, my freshman year. Dan Quayle came to speak. No one really cared. I, I got my MBA 2009 to 2011. I I really don't remember much going on on campus. It's, it's so hard for me to comprehend what's going on now. Well, it's so, it, and that's good. You shouldn't be able to comprehend this because it so contravenes the First Amendment and speech. I, I think co comprehend was the bad was a bad choice of words. The I, I don't know what's going on. Like if yeah, you, well. Well, you, you do know, but it's hard to get your mind around, your brain around it, because it's so contrary to what you and I and most parents expect at college. We expect our kids to go meet kids from all over the world, meet kids with different ideas, have discourse, have disagreements, respectful disagreements, grow up, but not be shut down, not be ostracized for their views, not have your opponent 
cry or bake warm cookies or report you to the administrator or go to their safe zone because you said something in support of Donald Trump or pro-life or pro-gun or pro-tax reform or whatever. That is, it so contravenes what you and I and generations of parents and taxpayers thought because you grow up to go to college. I mean, you grow up in college, I should say. And and what speech codes and trigger warnings and safe zones and all this stuff that's just made up, this, these intellectual constructs that have just come about the last 10, 20, 30 years. What they've done is make our, our kids soft. They've taught, uh, they've mistaught American history. They certainly mistaught the First Amendment. And you now know. you see, you find, I talk about this in the book a little bit, you finally see the beginnings of liberals, let alone conservatives, liberals waking up to, wait a second, this has gone way too far. You, what happened to the First Amendment? You, you write that, that the kids are being almost taught now that there's a constitutional right to not have someone oppose their point of view. It, well, they're, they're taught that they get to go through life without facing contrary views or uncomfortable opinions. So we, so we see, it seems like we see two forces in schools. We see this, or two, 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 two lanes of what's happening. The first would be the speech codes, the safe zones, the trigger warnings. And then the second thing is the actual academics that, and we'll probably see this more in elementary or high school, but the attacking of America and the attacking of capitalism. Yeah. Would that be, would that be fair to define it that way? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can't just be an environmentalist. Now you have to be an extreme environmentalist, which, you know, a lot of us uh, suspect is one way to attack capitalism. (laughs) Because capitalism is about growth. (laughs) Capitalism is about energy independence. And again, going back to the book, what did Donald Trump stand for? Growth and opportunity and energy independence and you know calling out the, the extremes of this of this woke left, especially the green left. And then he he was he disrupted again by saying, if you you have a speech code, we're gonna we're gonna withhold some money. Well, I love that. I, I love that. I love that. And I, I saw you saw the hypocrisy of some of these schools um in the in the uh, uh, after George Floyd, they come out and say, "Oh, geez, we're you know we are racist. You know we we've we've really discriminated against these. You know, these are the most liberal, you know, big time elite schools in the country. They come out and say, oh, 'Oh, we're racist.' Now, yeah, and Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education under Trump, to her credit, said, "Well, wait a second. Didn't you have to check off that you don't discriminate to qualify for federal funds? So what is it? Are you virtue signaling now, or are you really secretly racist? Yale and Princeton, all these schools, all these all these virtue signaling woke schools, right? right? So I love that. I love that. Enough. Come on, give me a break. It's insulting. It's insulting to the American taxpayer." And, I learned to a graduate of one of those institutions. Exactly. And, and you offer two solutions, one in the book, and I think one comes from your career as governor, but you say to withhold the donations if oh, you don't know yeah. what the school is doing. Yeah. And then as governor, you signed America's uh, or Maryland's first law on school choice. 
yeah, maybe two, you can talk about these. Two, two different issues, but uh, one, I tweet regularly. When your woke school has two-year-olds in mass and, and now claims to be secretly racist for for last hundred years or whatever, um, and and they're teaching you know progressive principles, they're indoctrinating kids. Just say no. Send your check to all of these dozens of groups now that have come about. I don't care, by the way, if they're right or left, because you have some now left-leaning groups coming out for speech on campus and all this. Send it whomever you like, but send it to a free speech group on campus. Send it to, to groups of people who are actually standing up to the, to the woke mob. And you uh, can, Your you money will be well spent. You can definitely earmark the donations, too. Absolutely. Well, you know, I don't send money to Princeton anymore. I send money to Princeton football. Yeah. I love my experience. I'm, I'm, you know, I look at the schooling now and the leadership and I go, my Lord, come on. And I think a lot of people feel this way. So um, uh, again, uh, and I don't want to, obviously so proud to go to a school like that and so honored to go to a school like that. And I see this woke stuff on campus and along with the faculty does and the virtue signaling, it's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. Yeah. So uh, that was the first issue you you uh, brought. What was the second now? The second was what you did as governor regarding school choice. Yeah, well, I wish it was more. We uh, had very liberal uh, members of the legislature fight me tooth and nail to pass uh, charter schools in Maryland. We were one of the last states to pass. The teachers union went, went nuts and fighting me. It came down to really the last session, my first year as governor, and the president of the Senate gave me a break and actually, who was a, at times a moderate Democrat, uh, and said, yeah, we're going to catch up with the rest of the country. Now, we had a relatively weak statute, but I believe in school choice. I believe especially in kids from poor backgrounds having an opportunity to punch their ticket into the American middle class. I was an athlete. I was lucky. I was picked out because I was an athlete. And a lot of poor athletes get picked out and given opportunities. But not all kids are athletes. Mm -hmm. Some kids have particular uh, talents in dance or music or the arts or whatever. And they get picked out too. But how about the average kid? Doesn't have superior talent in any particular field, but is sentenced to a failing school. What about that kid? Let's talk about that kid. And so I am emotional about this. I'm for all of the above when it comes to getting kids out of perpetually failing uh, schools. Uh, this, I thought at one time would be the next civil rights issue of our time. I had hoped it would be. Uh, at this time, it's not because the woke left has come in and done their thing. But I think it should be. I, I'm, I'm a little shocked that actually the Republicans are not pushing harder on this issue because we have the, the woke on one side of the issue, but the other side is we have what's what COVID has done to people that the, and, kids, that the kids have not been able to go to school. And that just hurts those minority kids. But let me take that back. It hurts the kids on the low income scale. Yeah. Disproportionately and, the minority. It hurts them the most. And no one talks about your point. And I talk about this a little bit in the book. No one talks about the kids, listen, my kids, your kids, most, a lot of, not all, but certainly a lot of middle class, upper middle class, wealthy kids, they're still going to learn. They have parents at home. Uh, they're forced to do their homework. 
They're smart kids. Uh, even distance learning because of COVID, uh, Zoom and all that stuff, they are going to be okay, most likely. Most will. Right. How about the average, how about the below average kid? How about the kid that needs interaction with teachers? How about the two-year-old forced to wear a mask in New York City? Uh, how about all the indoctrination occurring in these private schools rather than teaching? We need to talk about this stuff. Right. Uh, this has put us behind as a culture, as a country. And it's a real problem. And it's something I'm emotional about. I care about a great deal. Uh, I was that blue collar kid picked out because I could play. But every kid can't get that opportunity. So I'm very interested in providing more educational opportunities for kids stuck in failing school systems. And, it, and it's just such a win. I would think a winning issue. It's, uh, it's, just, bizarre. it's just bizarre that it's not discussed more. I've... Well, I, I think that um, issues like Title IX reform and speech on campus and school choice um, and support for HBCUs. You know, I talked about as governor, it was, they were priority issues for me as governor. And mm -hmm. I think for Republican governors are priority issues. We need to talk about more at the national level. You're right. right. But again, I thought the Trump record on education was very strong. Right, right. Um, this sort of lets us transition to, to another area, which you talk about, and it's how progressivism has taken control of the Democratic Party. So yeah. to set the table with this, how would you describe progressivism and how do you how would you describe the old school Democrats who you used to serve with in Congress? We just we just actually talked about this. Um, there were really two groups of Democrats. They were traditional liberals. Uh, and we fought between the 20s. And then when I was in Congress, there were the blue dogs. They were true Western Southern for the most part moderate to sometimes right-leaning Democrats who formed what really was a third party. President Reagan and President Bush had to deal with that third party. They, they did. Those administrations dealt with the third party as a separate entity, quite frankly, successfully. Uh, with the demise of those seats, most of those seats are now, because of reapportionment in the states, have gone Republican. There's very few Democrats left of moderate elk. You see uh, Joe Manchin being one. You see what's happening to him. <laughs> right. He's under 24-7 attack. Um, Christian Sinema being at, at times also in that category. But for the most part, uh, the liberal, the, the moderates are gone. The conservatives are wiped out. The moderates are pretty quiet. The liberals are scared to death uh, from being primary. And the woke left, uh, again, point I just made five minutes ago, a group that progressivism really, in many respects, does not hold these traditional liberal views. John Kennedy today would be a moderate Republican, uh, more than a moderate Republican, he'd be a right-leaning Republican. Mm -hmm. um, this has all changed. The, the fight between the 20s is gone. These progressives are serious. They have an agenda. I, most aren't socialists. I'm not sure they even know what socialism really is. They're not calling for government control of the means of production, but they are calling for models along the Western European gigantic welfare state you know, types of, of government. And, and that's not what you wish or I wish or the majority of the American people. They want high marginal tax rates, huge uh, welfare uh, states, uh, 
and and again, uh, slow growth economies. That's not what I think the American working class, middle class signed up for. That's not why we celebrate uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurism in this country. Uh, that's not why we celebrate opportunity, American exceptionalism, American assimilation, what makes us so special, what makes us so exceptional. Again, so they don't hold these principles very close. They reject most of them. And right now there is a fight. You think there's a fight for the soul of the Republican Party between established Republicans and Trump Republicans, which is true. But there's a more high stakes fight going on the left between progressives and liberals. And I make that point in the book as well. Well, you so you served in Congress from 95 to 2003. And some of those folks who are Democrats are still there, like Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Do you think that she truly believes what she's saying now? Like how I I find it so hard to believe that somebody could have changed so much over the course of. Well, I think I think there's two groups of folks in that subcategory. One are liberals who've just happily gone woke, gone further left, and they're okay with it. Mm -hmm. Um, The better example is Joe Biden. Uh, President Biden was a classic Northeastern safe seat, liberal, uh, sometimes neocon uh, on foreign policy uh, senator for what, four decades. And now suddenly he's, he's woke. Suddenly he's rejecting his voting record for 40 years. Are you buying that? No, no. Yeah. yeah I, I, so I think that's a better example than Nancy Pelosi, who was in San, San Francisco, obviously being a bastard of liberalism has always been pretty far left, uh, but whether she believes this stuff, I, I don't know, but I do know this, that ultimately this is not the uh, way the democratic party will go. Certainly not the way the country will go. And I think we're going to see that in 22 and 24. Yeah. You, you did an interesting electoral uh, election analysis. He said that in, in 2018, these Democrats did quite well by saying that they were more moderate. Yeah, and, yeah, I make that point in the book. There's purple seat Democrats, correct? And they and ran then, on moderate platforms, and now they they all voted for Build Back Better. So good luck defending that. Yeah, that was going to be my. And then it's interesting. I think with Biden, you say that you know he had his definite definite progressive side by getting AOC as an advisor on the environment on the environment. Beto was on guns, but yet he portrayed himself as a moderate, or at least the media portrayed him as. Well, the media was media was going to portray anybody in any way to get Donald J. Trump. This was every power source in America. When you think about big business, big labor, big academia, the legacy press. Uh, uh, some Republicans, most Democrats, liberal Democrats, uh, left-leaning Democrats, woke Democrats, everybody was against Donald J. Trump. And so they they were going to paint President Biden. Paying President Biden legitimately during the campaign would have been old-fashioned liberal. Hubert Humphrey. Um but he was never, ever a woke progressive Democrat, ever. Well, and, and, and so, uh, but again, whether 
they did it purposely knowing he was going to go further left or they just did it to beat Donald Trump. It was always about beating Donald Trump. The mail-in voting, the whole nine, everything was about beating Donald Trump. Everything. It did Russia, 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 Ukraine, uh, all the misreporting was all about beating President Trump, period, bottom line. So as we go forward, do you think that do you think that the media and the Democrats will be successful to paint themselves as moderate? Because it seems like the shine is the shine's off the apple now. Certainly the American people hopefully won't be fooled again. Well, again, uh, two things about Virginia and New Jersey. Nobody talks about New Jersey. A Republican candidate had no money at all and in, in, it was 50-50 race up there. Very close. But the Republicans, thank God we won. Thank God uh, Youngkin won. But when he won by a point and a half, it shows you, first of all, how blue Virginia is. When the Democrats can run on trying to explain and protecting what was going on in Loudoun County and only lose by a point and a half. But the real reason uh, Terry McAuliffe lost that race, again, was what he said. And enough blue-leaning, liberal-leaning Democratic suburban parents who did not vote for Donald Trump and probably won't vote for him again uh, in the future did not vote for Terry McAuliffe. They just said, you know what? You know, we like to be, we like to think of ourselves liberal and all that, but this is too far. No, that's my kid. No, I'm a taxpayer. No, this is a public school. No, this is a public school board. No, I have standing. Uh, I have an investment in my child. No one's going to get between me and my child. So if Republicans, my point to you is this, if Republicans can point to how anti-common sense a lot of this stuff is, how it just shutting down pipelines for no apparent reason and then begging OPEC for more oil, <laughs> just the common sense stuff here. Right. You know, just, you know, people forget. I make this point in the book as well. The border had some problems under President Trump the first couple of years. It wasn't border peace, but he showed leadership. He came up with stay in Mexico. It was a great compromise. And what did it do? It worked. It worked. It worked. So you just don't come in and undo it and create chaos. It just made no sense. The president had an idea about Afghanistan, had an agreement, but it wasn't what went down ultimately. He wouldn't have allowed that to happen. That's just you know, a- so, the Air Force Base. So, so sad. Such an embarrassment. Uh, every time I think about it, it's just just terrible. It's terrible. I mean, we left Americans behind. We left yeah, Africans well lives behind. But again, to, the central point here is if Republicans can just run with sort of a common sense, not even call it conservative agenda, it's a common sense agenda. And, and let me maybe just close on this point, Michael, because we talk about America first, the mega movement, and all that. It was never about America alone. The president said it a million times. Yeah, I'm not calling out NATO because we reject NATO. I just want to call it the deadbeat members to pay their fair share. I'm a disruptor. Yeah. I believe in NATO. I believe in Article 5. You know, I believe in multilateralism, but that also means everybody's got to pay up. I believe in trade deals. We just want to go bilateral. You know, I believe in peace deals. We just want to go bilateral. It's not America alone here. We need our allies. Again, he was painted as this sort of nutty right-wing unilateralist. 
and he never was. He didn't. He didn't even his speech. If you'd actually listen to his speeches, it was not about that. But it was about rejecting these old assumptions that hadn't worked. And and uh, that's why I again wrote the book. It's important to understand this stuff. It's important to understand how unique, important uh, this particular four-year period in American history was. And hopefully this agenda, whether it's led by President Trump or not, will be the roadmap to future success for the GOP and for the country. I think that's a, that's a, that's a great way to close it. Uh, like I said, it's a, just a wonderful book. I think people are going to get a lot out of it. They're going to learn a lot about Trump, but they're also going to learn about issues that are facing the country and that that are problems that we're just going to have to deal with, um, especially this this fight against progressivism, the fight against wokeness in the in the schools and society as a whole. Yes, very much so. And again, the Republicans don't have to move right; they just have to articulate common sense and enough folks in the middle, enough independents. You see the polls now; mm-hmm. they'll say, "Yeah, I think we'll get them a shot again because this stuff, this woke stuff, isn't working for me." Right. Right. Well, thanks so much again. I'm going to be putting your link to your book and your website and your podcast um, in the podcast description. And I look forward to speaking with everyone next time on Advancing the Agenda.